I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is the British Labor MP, Stella Creasy, who is both heavily pregnant and in the middle of an election campaign, and despite all of that, has found time to talk to me about her experiences as a woman politician. Stella, you grew up in a Labor-supporting household in Manchester, and you started attending political protests from the age of 13. What got you so involved so young? Well, actually, I was 11 when I went on the anti, what was on the anti-poll tax riots and we just moved from from Manchester to small town Essex and I thought I was the only socialist in the county apart from my mum and dad and, and a man called Billy Bragg who's a very famous <laughs> singer and the country was incredibly divided I'd moved from a place where everyone it was a very multicultural very diverse community to a very small town very white very conservative place and I had a kind of fight or flight reaction really, where I thought, well, if these values are these things that I've been brought up to think matter, I should do something about it. Didn't go down that well with my teachers, I have to be honest. <laughs> Every so often I meet teachers of mine from school and I just apologise to them now because I was that kid who kept going, but why? But why? And my mum and dad always say that the worst thing they ever did was to say to me, when I said, the world is unfair, what are you going to do about it? Because they now live in the community that I represent and like they have to put up with what I'm trying to do about it as a result. Well, it certainly sparked a lifetime of work. Yeah. But in your school, where those teachers were being asked why, why, <laughs> you actually had a campaign to try and ban chocolate. Now, that doesn't seem to me a very popular move in a girl's school. Can you tell us about so that? I, um, one of the things I do a lot of now is I try and train people in campaigning because I believe everybody can make a, a difference. But partly it comes from my experience of thinking of all the times I've got it wrong. And that was probably quite a spectacularly getting it wrong. It was um, a campaign here about Nestle. So Nestle were selling powdered milk in developing nations and therefore stopping women breastfeeding. They were making a lot of profit out of this. And there was a big campaign about that time in the 1990s to challenge them. So I persuaded everyone in my school that we didn't want Nestle products in the chocolate machine in the school. And for one day, we were a powerful force for social good. And for one day, having a chocolate machine in an all-girls school with no chocolate in it, <laughs> It was a good lesson to always think, what are you going to do next? What's the next <laughs> step in campaigning? Uh, 
pretty quickly lost the argument with them and the chocolate was, was restored the next day. <laughs> but you learned a lot of campaigning yes. skills and that, that's really important. Now, you were in an all-girls school. Yes. At what stage did it occur to you, I'm getting treated differently because I'm a girl? So it's, it's a really interesting question for me because actually it wasn't until I got a lot older that it occurred to me that there was gender inequality, partly because I grew up in a house that my mum was a head teacher. She's an extraordinary woman, my mum. She now, she's retired. She helps run the local night shelter for the homeless. She's always been a very powerful figure for good. My dad was a singer. So actually he was very involved in my childcare when I was younger because when he wasn't on tour, he was around. So it never occurred to me. And they, my parents were always very clear with me and my brother that, as I say, you had to do something. You couldn't just sit around and whinge about things, but you could be involved in public service. And it wasn't until I sort of got into my teenage years and people were trying to tell me, as a girl, certain things weren't available. You know, when we would do debates with the, the local boys' school and people would make comments. And I, I mean, I, I'd grown up in a household where my mum encouraged me to read things like Alice Walker and Marge Piercy. So we had whole rows of feminist literature. Just, it was a complete bubble of you must go out and do the things that you think you're capable of. So suddenly being faced with people who would make presumptions about me because of my hair colour, because of my gender, because of my age, was extraordinary to me. And I challenged it accordingly, you know. And how did you challenge it? Oh, uh, <laughs> again, having thought I was the only socialist, I then thought I was the only feminist within the village. I got very involved in a lot of social activism. I got very involved, not actually not necessarily within political activism to begin with. That wasn't until I was a, a later on in my teen years when I began to see a connection between the causes that I really cared about and what the political process could offer. But I was very clear at school. I challenged the teachers who tried to tell me what girls should or shouldn't do. Spectacular. I mean, even to this day, I'm a terrible cook. I wasn't interested <laughs> in all the lessons on home ec. But also I was part of that generation and I, I feel it very strongly now. I'm in my, my 40s where we sort of thought the gains that our mothers and indeed our fathers had made in terms of equality were inevitable. So actually I always think we almost took our foot off the pedal a bit. So I was of the generation where we had the kind of ladette moment, which was like actually women are going to go out there and as brash and as bold as guys and we can cope with magazines. I don't know whether they had them in Australia, the kind of FHM and nuts because actually they're parodying sexual stereotypes rather than increasing them. I think in the last 10, 15 years, I'd say we have a rude wake-up call that that kind of attitude that people like my generation of feminists were very much involved in, actually we've gone backwards. I mean, one of the first debates I got involved in when I was elected was about whether or not there should be anonymity for victims of rape. And it was in 2010 in Parliament. And I thought, I thought we solved this question because I remember us talking about that when I was a teenager and getting involved in social activism and women's rights then. And you realise that these debates come back and back and back because there's always a backlash against equality and against progress. I was also hopeless at home economics. It's the only, <laughs> only fail on my whole school record and I'm quite proud of it. <laughs> Now, of course, Margaret Thatcher wasn't your brand of politics, and even at the tender age of 11, you were out campaigning against her poll tax. But did the very fact that there was a woman there as Prime Minister leave you with an impression, well, women can do politics too, women can come to the well, top were, of politics? there were quite a lot of women at various points who were very famous in British politics when I was kind of coming of age. People like Edwina Curry, Virginia Bottomley, who were all Conservatives. Actually, it wasn't until 97... I mean, 97, we had the Blair Babes. I mean, I shudder to think about it now that we kind of let the progressive political party enjoyed that picture that somehow it was all about these women coming in to be a donut around a man rather than women in their own rights. And what I call the brochalism 
the men who want to tell you that they care about equality, but they'll do it for you. So, you know, <laughs> your, your job as a woman in the labour movement is to run an event for them. They'll do the strategy and the big thinking and the clever stuff. And unfortunately, quite a lot of that still continues on. I think certainly what Thatcher did for a lot of us was she undoubtedly broke a mould and you shouldn't ever deny that. What I find frustrating now is that, what, 30 years on from her tenure, we're still being compared to her. So actually there's this kind of like, well, we had a woman. In fact, we've had two women. There's some very famous male commentators in the UK who kind of say, we've got equality because we've had, you know, a woman run the country and there's a, a woman in charge as the queen and, you know, there's a woman in charge of the police. And you're like, that's three. <laughs> <laughs> We're a country of 70 million. I think think there might be some further to go. And it's almost like we haven't moved on. I mean, one of the things I think, I say, for my generation of feminists now is that we have not made the progress in the 20 years that I thought we would have done. And I, I get very impatient for change. I mean, actually, when I look at when people say, oh, look, we've got women in Parliament now. And you're like, yeah, we're still 30%. And actually, that figure hasn't changed very much in 20 years. We're seeing women now at this election standing down. We're not seeing loads of women coming forward. But there's a very famous study that shows that if a room has 20% women in, the men think it's 50-50. Yeah. And if it has 30% women in, the men think there's more women than men. And it feels like living in that. And that, that feeling hasn't changed from when I first got involved in politics in my kind of late teens and got involved in national labour politics to now, if I'm honest. There's still that sense of kind of like, there are quite a lot of you here, aren't you? That'll do. And <laughs> That's like, enough now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't overstretch yourself. <laughs> now, let's talk about the journey in. And I do mm. want to talk to you about uh, the way in which women, or some women are stepping away from politics yeah. in this British election. But on your journey in, uh, you were involved as a political staffer, as a researcher, and then you went into local council politics. Mm. What attracted you to that local level? So I didn't do student politics at all because I met the student politicians at university and thought, get a life, guys. <laughs> it was, I I'm, I'm not a... taking that as a personal <laughs> insult, though I could in, as a former British, student I mean, politician. <laughs> 1997 so obviously it was a big moment I did campaign in 97 but people were very you know really tiny things became really big issues and I thought actually I want to have some fun at university I want to do some learning but I also want to have a good time I'm in my 20s and I thought I'll do local government because local government is you know serious important issues real people's lives what I realized was that at least in student politics people after kind of three or four years would kind of get out they'd get mm. a sense of perspective they could laugh at themselves I was a chief whip on a hung council at the age of 25, 26 in this local community. And I would have conversations with people a good 40 years older than me that would say, well, in 1979 on the planning committee, he said this about me. <laughs> I'd be like, let it go. <laughs> you know? And you realise that people in politics across all different places can get, because they care. They do really care. I mean, that's, and I think, I think that's the same in all political parties, actually. And it's so personal and it's so much about what you believe the changes should be that sometimes they can lose sight of kind of <laughs> what is healthy, I would suggest. And what do you think you learned from that, though? Obviously, you had a view about going out into the community and hearing mm. what people needed and wanted and then putting that as a priority at the local council. But the boredom factor, the <laughs> personality factors. I was also doing a PhD at the same time in psychology. And I've always been really interested in the psychology of participation, what makes people tick, turn up, get involved, make change happen. I would put it all together. And I, this the community I represent, I mean, I know every politician you speak to thinks that they have the best, but it but really is. This is God's own country. And I, I don't just call it that to annoy my colleagues from Yorkshire. <laughs> Walthamstow is full of amazing people who could transform the world. And getting out there and getting to know those people and work with them was life enhancing for me and life enhancing about the power of politics to change things for good. 
And then you would come up against, oh, yes, but we've got this committee and this committee must have these minutes. And you think the people aren't the problem, the processes. So actually, if we could get the process to unlock people's better nature. So they weren't all fighting about what happened in planning in 1979. <laughs> Imagine what we could do. And in terms of taking the next step and ending mm. up being the House of Commons representative for yeah. this community, for God's own country, as you refer to it, <laughs> there is research by the Fawcett Society, mm. the women's rights charity, that says women MPs are more likely than men to say they decided to stand as an MP because someone asked them to. Were you asked or did you put yourself forward when the constituency that you live in, that you were involved in local government yeah. in, became so, available? Actually, I burst into tears. I had stood down from the local... So having said that, I was mayor, I was chief whip, I was trying to write a PhD, I was trying to work to earn the money to live. I mean, I had a, a very intense... 20s I kind of thought I need to give myself a break so I I stood down from the local council thinking I would get more time to do the grassroots stuff that I love and then I was actually I was out in a bar with a mate of mine and my dad <laughs> texted me to tell me that the MP who's a, who's a lovely guy and I'd worked very close was standing down and I burst into tears because I knew if there was any kind of position I'd really want to do and I knew also that I'm my worst enemy when it comes to something that you re- so I just thought if this doesn't happen it's it'll be me who messes it up so I'm, I mean, I'm just very honestly, I was completely kind of overwhelmed with the, the possibility of doing it and the potential of being able to serve the community that you care about, but at a national level. I hadn't particularly thought at that point, it was 2007, when we thought there might be a snap election here. We used to think those are a bad idea in the UK. Now we love them. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to happen a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people love a good leaflet. I just knew then how much... It mattered to me. You know, I wasn't one of the favoured sons or daughters. I had to fight it in my own right. I had to make my case to people who I'd known and worked with for many years, good or bad. It was several hundred people at that point who had a, a vote in it. And it was about a nine month process of having those conversations. Some, a bit like a bad family Christmas where everyone tells you what you're doing wrong in your life. And you're kind of going, uh-huh, uh-huh, that's great. But I, there was no doubt in my mind that I had to go for it because I would always regret it if I didn't because it would mean so much to be able to do it. And how many competitors were there for the oh, seat? Oh, gosh, there were 27. 27. It's one of the things that really annoys me. So I was, this was an all-women shortlist. And when you say that, and you, they, people kind of go, oh. And you're like, did you meet the other 27 women I was standing <laughs> against? Like, they were incredibly impressive people. All-women shortlists aren't about the women who are standing. They're about the people doing the selecting and trying to take off the kind of blinkers that people have about what leadership looks like to see what else is out there. And back before, I mean, look, all political parties try to configure, let's say, their selection processes. But this was a genuinely open, genuinely long process of debate and discussion. And to win in that circumstance with those women was extraordinary. And so how old were you when you hit the House of Commons? <laughs> yeah, it's 10 years ago. So I was, um, I was 33. You don't get these choices in politics because when it becomes available, the opportunity, either you yeah. grab it or you let it go by. But yeah. looking back on it now, was it too young? Would you have preferred <laughs> a, a different pathway? I mean, I hadn't thought of it in that way. It just, it was Walthamstow. It was my home. It was my heart. But it was also about, at that point, what the Labour movement could be. So, yeah, in 2007, it's fair to say that the political party that I cared about was struggling. And to be part of trying to renew it and renew what it could and renew left wing politics in the UK was, I mean, it was just a a confluence of things at that time. What I think is sad is that a lot of women will talk about luck and I don't think it was luck. I mean, it was bloody hard work. Yes. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But it was also 
a group of people who maybe would have given me a chance in a way that other people would have kind of gone, oh yeah, you're a young blonde. I remember for the selection being told I had to have a, a haircut to make me look older. <laughs> And I had to wear a suit. I mean, was, I'm not a great suit wearer. <laughs> and I kind of looked like a bad version of Dolly Parton. I was like, are we sure this is going to work? Are we sure? And I don't think anybody actually took any notice of it. But it was, um, you know, it was at that point when then, of course, as a young, a youngish, I mean, I was 33. I was a youth worker by that point. So I was doing for a day job. The kids I was working with were very clear. I was very old. Mm. But everyone else in politics was like, oh, you're young. You won't know what you're doing. You've got to do, you've got to do it like this. You've got to have your colours done. Use your doctorate because then people will take you seriously. I was like... Uh, have your colours done meaning what like is colour, the... Like what colours you should be wearing. And, and I was like, I just, I just want to put a trainers out and get out there and get talking to people. It, and absolutely none of my male colleagues are in that position. In the same way, like when I was a... So when I was a councillor, the first year as a councillor, I was mayor and deputy mayor. And the rumour went round, the only reason I got those positions was I must be sleeping with the leader of the council, who yeah. was old enough to be my granddad, let alone my dad. My male compatriots, who were similar age groups, who were put into positions running other parts of the council, it was like, oh, great, great, you know, young talent. And I was like, hold on a minute. <laughs> you know. And it was the same being elected as an MP. I walked into Parliament the first day, and there was, well, there was a big churn of people in 2010 because of the, we had an expenses scandal in the UK. So there were lots of very new faces. So they were stopping everybody coming in. And the man in front of me, oh, sir, you know, welcome to Parliament. Please to get your husband. And they, came, and they looked at me and they presumed I was there as somebody's assistant. Right. So they said, oh, who, who are you here to work for? And because I was being a bit pretentious, I did go, Walthamstow. <laughs> but it was like, no, which MP? I was like, no, no, I am, I am. the MP for Walthamstow. It still doesn't get old and it still doesn't get kind of awkward. But you have to own it because actually... <laughs> You know, you're never going to win that battle. That, and I, I think as I get older, people will still make presumptions about what I do or don't know, you know, what you're capable of, what you're not capable of. And you realise it's nothing to do with you. It's everything to do with them. You know? I have uh, female CEOs who are in my age range, so in yeah. their late 50s, who turn up at meetings with a male assistant and say that everybody in the meeting directs all their commentary to the male yeah. assistant. So it's actually not a function of age. Maybe some of the confusion might be, oh, she seems very young to be a member of parliament. But there's obviously a gender dynamic going yeah. on there too. And in terms of the way you were received, I mean, every election, you know, the commentators do the analysis who looks like they've got the stuff for the future. Mm -hmm. And you were referred to as one of the brightest lights of Labor's new generation, but also as haranguing, aggressive, too big for your boots. How do you react to that? Oh, yeah. Now I'm a husband. <laughs> you go through every cycle. Look, undoubtedly. So, so I had a great opportunity and also a great risk, which is because I hadn't come in through patronage. I just started doing things because I thought, well, we're here. I mean, OK, we're not. In, we, my party had lost government, but I've never believed that you have to be in office to have power. I just think being in office adds to your power. I remember one senior MP taking me aside and being like, now you're probably a bit of a wallflower. And I was like, mm, don't think so. <laughs> you can't win. And one of the things that my mum has always, always said to me is it's not about you. And she's right. Like, actually, it's very easy in this job to become very self-obsessed and self-aware. You know, my mum is very clear about keeping my boots firmly on the ground and saying it's about Walthamstow and what you can do for the community, for the country. And if you're not thinking that way, you shouldn't be doing the job. She's she's very tough with me, and she's right. So it didn't really occur to me. Probably not politically very wise. I just thought, I'm just going to get on and do things. So um, I was seeing a lot of people in my local community who were getting very heavily into debt through payday lending. 
And I started researching and going, well, what is it about this industry and what could we do about it? And just started putting forward legislation and just started campaigning. I mean, that's kind of what I'd come in to do. And people were gobsmacked. It was like, who's this new MP <laughs> coming in? And, and I actually got told that I would have to... So I got promoted. I think that was the first attempt people made to kind of silence me, was to put me into a, a promotion. And then they said, well, no, if you want to continue... To, if you keep tabling amendments and you're not part of the... Then you'll have to resign. I was like... Because they were outside your designated shadow portfolio area. Yeah, but I mean, so I was I was a shadow PPS. Like basically, I would have to run around trying to persuade people to ask questions in a question time. It wasn't the most... Show, a shadow a, PPS, a sh- shadow parliamentary secretary, we yeah, would say so in it was Australia. Like, you're kind of like a gopher right. for a shadow minister to get people to ask questions about a, a topic. And they, I remember one sort of heavy-handed whip taking me aside and saying, oh, you know... If you carry on doing this, you'll have to resign. I said, if you ask me to resign from this exalted job to fight legal loan sharking, you will make my career in the labour movement. And I was quite... (laughs) Because it it just hadn't occurred to me that you should sit on the sidelines. And I think that's one of the things, again, why I do all this campaign training with people, because I don't think it's about one individual person. Like, progressive politics requires everybody to get stuck in. So everybody needs to have the confidence, the networks, the ideas, the support to be able to do it. As I've gotten older, what I think now is that in 2010, it was an article of faith for me that these things could actually happen within our political system. A bit like I discovered in local government, where you thought, this is a great community group, we should do all these fundings. And I was like, yeah, we have a committee. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of took the same approach to Parliament. But this time, perhaps because I'd had that experience in local government of feeling frustrated, I refused to let that define what we could do. I just knew it would be harder. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Laura, I want to come to the work that you've done now on abortion rights. We talked a little bit earlier about, haven't we fixed that yet? Mm. Um, in the United Kingdom, wasn't that fixed already? So in 1861, a piece of legislation was passed <laughs> in the United Kingdom called the Offences Against the Person Act that said having an abortion was like child stealing or using gunpowder to blow up Parliament. And it was equally illegal with a high level of penalty. In 1967, a law was passed in England and Wales and Scotland that exempted women from prosecution if two doctors would say, well, if she doesn't have an abortion, she'll go mad. Right. That law was nev- that exemption was never extended to Northern Ireland. So the original law stayed on the statute book, which meant that in Northern Ireland, if you were raped and you became pregnant as a result of it and sought a termination, you would face a longer prison sentence than your attacker. Oh. Or if you had a, a baby that had a fatal fetal abnormality, so a baby that was going to die as soon as it was born, you had to carry it to term or else you would be committing a crime if you tried to, to, to get rid of it. Actually, women's rights in the UK are, you know, they're not actually as modern as people would like them to be. But what we did was to argue to repeal that piece of United Kingdom legislation that is 160 years out of date so that you make abortion a medical rather than a criminal matter. So you start with medical regulation rather than the criminal law and what can happen on it. Why it matters to say the law is as it is, because now having passed that law in 
Northern Ireland, we have the most progressive legislation in, in the area that people thought that would never happen. But actually, I would like my constituents to be treated as grown-up women who can make choices rather than letting... There's no other medical procedure where two doctors have to say, this thing that you would like to choose to do, all right, we'll let you do it because otherwise the consequences are so great. But and it's only when it comes to women that we always decide they probably can't make their own choices. And so you were really trying to get over the old law for Northern Ireland yeah. and you've actually done that so well that rights for women in Northern Ireland are now better than for yeah. uh, women. Well, because we won, the, we won a very important argument, which was this was a human right. So up until we started this debate, everyone talked about abortion as a medical devolved healthcare matter. And we said, actually, when the United Nations are telling us that the UK is torturing women in Northern Ireland, which they did, they wrote several reports saying this by forcing them to continue unwanted pregnancies in such horrific ways. It's a basic human right to control what happens to your body. For me, what's been so powerful about this is that we've won the argument that having control of what happens to your body shouldn't be a gendered question for people. So now the issue is, well, what does that mean for the rest of the United Kingdom? <laughs> and was the lived reality in Northern Ireland before the law changed that women who wanted to access a termination and who had the wherewithal to travel to... England or Wales or Scotland would be able to get the termination there, but women who couldn't do the travel, couldn't afford it or didn't have the networks so would the first, end up first, without access. The first change that we made, that one where I was running around in the Queen's speech, was that we had women in Northern Ireland who pay their taxes paying for abortion procedures that they weren't then entitled to have. So we changed the law in 2017 to allow women from Northern Ireland to travel to England and Wales and have an abortion on the NHS rather than have to pay for it themselves. It was never a solution because lots of women can't travel and I've always believed you should be able to access an abortion safely, legally and locally. But what that did was start to give us some figures and we found out that 28 women a week were travelling. It is a big issue. But I also, I find it ignominious. So people in the UK were very angry about what, say, was happening in Alabama where you've got abortion rights being restricted by, by Donald Trump's kind of administrations and yet on their own doorstep <laughs> there were fellow UK citizens who had even worse conditions. I mean, at least in Alabama they were talking about six weeks to be able to have an abortion. It's not, I don't think that's acceptable, but, you know, there was some abortion. There was literally nothing in Northern Ireland. And what brought home the importance of the change above all was there was a mum who had a daughter who was 15 in an abusive relationship. She'd bought abortion pills online for her daughter They'd then gone to the doctor and the doctor was legally required to report them. That mum spent six years facing a prosecution of five years for trying to help her daughter. And the day that law came in and repealed that, they acquitted the case against her. And she just said, I can go back to being a mum now. Mm. And I just thought that is absolutely why. So I've had a lot of abuse. I've had a lot of people attack me for doing this work. But you realise there are so many voices in places like Northern Ireland that just hadn't been heard in our current political process. And it was worth that fight alone for that for that moment to hear what she had to say. Let's come to what happened as a result of you being really very much involved at the forefront of this abortion mm. rights campaign. There was direct, very personalised campaigning against yeah. you, which seems to have been informed by some of the campaign techniques used in the United States. Yeah. And that used a slogan of Stop Stella. What do you think they meant by stop Stella? When I first got elected, British campaigning tends to be, you know, sometimes quite sedate. You, you get an angry letter in spirally handwriting, maybe within green ink, but that's about it. This is a form of political engagement that we've seen in America in particular. And indeed, we know that the groups doing it had connections to American organisations. It's called the Centre for Bioethical Reform. They turned up with 
20-foot posters of my head next to pictures of aborted fetuses, a quite late-term aborted fetuses, saying, your MP is working to make this happen. In my community, they set up a whole campaign about the fact that because I'm, I'm pregnant, they said I was a hypocrite, which I, I didn't quite understand where they were saying to me, right, you need to have an abortion to be consistent, which I thought, given that they would like to claim that their pro-life isn't terribly consistent of them, they have unleashed a whole tirade of people writing to me, telling me that I'm a baby killer, telling me that I must be stopped, that direct action is the only way to stop me killing more babies. They are constantly on my social media, they're in my local community, they are, and they're still doing this stuff, they are harassing me, basically, and it's a form of campaign. This is not free speech. I've had, over the years, lots of debates with people about abortion who feel very strongly about it, because it is a very emotive issue for people. They've never felt the need to intimidate... I mean, they may as well put a target on my head in these pictures and kind of said to people, it's, it's a form of radicalisation. It's, you know, go out and stop this person however you can because she's responsible for the deaths of millions of children. It's incredibly inflammatory and it's completely different from having a debate about what you consider to be human rights or what you consider to be a right to choose or at what point you might have a time, all those sorts of things. We haven't had that in British politics before. British politics is becoming incredibly toxic and it has over the last couple of years really taken a turn. I've had rape and death threats before. I did some work on women's representation on our banknotes with a woman called Caroline Crowder-Press, an amazing campaigner, and that was kind of the first time people saw that. It's now become so common that it's not really talked about. It's just seen as part of the job. But I think what was happening to me, and I think particularly the idea that you could target a pregnant woman in that way was for people quite shocking... And also the police response, where the police first and foremost said, well, you're a public figure, so you can't be harassed. And secondly, this is a matter of free speech. It's an, a contentious issue. So if you want to challenge it, what you must do is do a counter-protest rather than call it out for a form of harassment because they are singling you out and, and kind of offering you up as the person to attack. And we know this organisation in America has been linked to shootings and violence against people. So the, the threat is not idle. And yet the police were... The police um, have done nothing. Right. Police spend their time telling me that, that it's their job to make sure these people can protest peacefully. And you're like, there's not anything peaceful about putting my head next to a baby that was about the same age as the baby I was carrying at the time and saying, this is what she's trying to do. That's a form of, in, of incitement. Mm, and um, com- completely passing over every factual that you were involved in a campaign to change the law which would give women choices. You're not yeah. making those choices for women. No, um, but it's also, I mean, that. the irony is so one of the other campaigns I'm very involved in here in in the UK is to make misogyny a hate crime because in this country had they been targeting me for my ethnicity or my sexuality or my religion the law would say oh that's a hate crime that's picking on a protected characteristic we have a blind spot about women so you know this is a very gendered campaign about a very specific thing that women do get pregnant and the police just have a complete blind spot so they've done nothing. And how did you feel personally when that huge billboard went up? look, I'm a human being, of course it was shocking and distressing and the personal element of it, I I mean, they knew, they talked in their campaign, I have struggled for many years to get pregnant, I've had a number of miscarriages, it's been something that has been a very personally trying thing for me to now be pregnant and I still, I'm two weeks away from giving birth, I still think something's going to go wrong. When somebody puts up a picture of your head next to a dead baby and says, this is what you do, I I would be inhuman if I wasn't upset and hurt by it. And then, of course, you realise that they're coming for you and they're coming for my baby. I mean, and that's 
<laughs> that's extraordinary. And you felt it like that. You yes. felt this is an attack on me, this is an attack on my family, these people won't draw any lines about where to stop. No, and also it was an attack on my community. They're coming to my hometown, many women in my local community who'd had miscarriages, had abortions, had struggles, got in touch with me. They were deeply distressed because it wasn't just that picture, there were pictures of fetuses and they, they bought billboards in my community to put up with my name and, you know, pictures of, of, of fetuses saying, you've got to stop her. You know, you feel both a responsibility for the community that you care about and also just very personally on edge. Of course I'm on edge. I've seen how they've incited other people. You know, I, I, I then read all the stuff coming in about what people think should happen to me as a result of what these people are doing, to then be in a position where the police do nothing, and you think, well, if they can do that to me, they won't just stop stop with me, they'll do it to other women. So for me, this is very much a landmark moment where we've got to say it's not it's not about special treatment for me. We've got to we've got to give women the equal right to be heard and the equal right to say things that people are going to find difficult without being screamed and shouted down or made to live in fear of their life or what might happen. And in British politics at this moment, there is a real debate about toxicity in women, yeah. not solely associated with abortion rights no. campaigning, but much more broadly. Yeah. At this election so far, 18 women have said that they will not recontest their seats. Now, there are always retirements at elections. That's not new. But what's remarkable here is how early in their careers some of these women are exiting and how high profile they are. They're the sort of women who you would have expected in the normal course of things to be in Parliament for a lot longer, to become even more senior ministers, and many of them have served already at very high levels. Where do you think this cycle is going to end Many of these women have pointed to the social media abuse as a causal factor uh, in deciding to exit. It's also, look, Jo Cox was a mate of mine. Jo and I did politics together. I still occasionally think I see her running around the building in Parliament in her cycling gear. And we know the threat is very real. When you have a Prime Minister, when a woman MP gets up and is basically in tears saying, look, I'm getting all these threats. And, And for me, it's not actually about social media. I've had people scream and shout at me in the street. So it's the online and the offline mix up together because you're normalising the idea that that's how you respond to politicians and that's how you respond to people you disagree with. You scream and shout them down. And there are women in all political parties saying that the abuse, I've, I've had enough, I can't, I can't deal with it. What makes me sad is that people are still talking about it as it's a problem with the women rather than the environment you're asking them to go into. So we're still saying that women have to shape themselves around these factors, that it's the heat of the kitchen, that it's what's free speech is rather than going... What is the damage this is doing? Mm. <laughs> you know, and the voices we're losing, the experience, the insight. That, and actually, I was <laughs> always say, lads, we're doing you a favour because countries that are more diverse in their leadership, more diverse in their communities, more diverse in their companies, do better. I mean, the bottom line is that equality is a great economics question. But we still see it here as very much about the women who you've left out and the, the poor snowflakes that you've got to somehow cosset them. I don't want to be cosseted. I don't want to feel in fear of my life. I think those two things are not unreasonable expectations to have as a, as a representative. And yet our politics is getting to that point. And I'm very sad when I see women who I disagree with politically, but walking away because you know it's not about them. It's about the environment and the environment not changing. And actually then people kind of presuming that the environment can never change and we we have to change it. I want to talk about one change you've brought to the environment. <laughs> when you have your baby in two weeks' time, yes. you've organised to have a locum. I have, yes. To stand in uh, your shoes while you take a little bit of maternity leave the first time ever. Can you just describe what those arrangements well, I mean, that's, are? That's, that's been the paradox is that for years, obviously, I'd struggled to get pregnant. Look, I had 
miscarriages and yet I was going and standing in front of community meetings. I always kept the personal and the political separate because I didn't want to let Walthamstow down. And yet when I got to the point where I was a bit more confident about this pregnancy and I rang the parliamentary authorities and said, OK, so what's the deal? If I'm going to take some maternity leave, then there'll be things and tasks that I do that somebody needs to cover. They went, oh, no, MPs don't take maternity leave. I said, I <laughs> think they do. I think, and I spoke to colleagues who, I mean, one colleague who had a cesarean section and three days later was back at her office because there was nobody to cover what she does. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I fought so hard to have this child. <laughs> I do think I probably want to spend some time with it and I don't want Walthamstow to sort of be going, I've emailed her and she's not responding you know, or knocking on the door for a surgery and, and it not be there. So I pushed and pushed for a locum. So this is somebody to cover what I do outside of Parliament, I should say. So I've also appointed a man to be my proxy. So he will vote for me on behalf because he's, he's a dad and he's like, I totally get this. Of course, we should be doing this. So you know, I always want to say that there are lots of men out there who get that we should do things in a different way. So Martin Whitfield will be my proxy. He'll vote on my behalf, so I won't lose votes in Parliament. But the locum will cover everything that, that politicians do outside of the chamber. Now, the irony of me, of course, is that the election has been called and there's no cover for election campaigning. So having thought I might finally <laughs> get to have a rest before I have my baby, I'm going to be out every night campaigning until I have the baby because there's nobody else to do that. But if I win the election, this person will cover that first six months. And the sad thing is that the parliamentary authorities have said that's a one-off. So they've said, we'll do it for you because you've made enough of a fuss, because, of course, women always make a fuss. And I'm like, well, the great thing is you funded someone to keep that campaign going, you know, <laughs> because it's not just politicians who don't have great... Mater- you know, a third of women in this country get into debt when they take maternity leave. That can't be family-friendly. Only 10% of couples do shared parental leave, yet we know that when men take leave, that helps tackle the gender pay gap. So this person will also be part of helping push those issues forward for the six months, so there's no gap in that work. A fantastic first, and I'm sure it is a first. I find it impossible to think that the parliamentary authorities won't be able to do it for the next woman and the next woman. Now, we're going to conclude with a series of questions that we like to ask guests. (laughs) Uh, The first is to put a fact to them and get their response. So your (laughs) fact. Uh, We try and style these a fun fact, but this isn't fun at all. Fawcett Society's Sex and Power report published in 2018 said women make up 32% of MPs, 26% of Lords, 33% of Ministers, 26% of Cabinet Ministers, 25% of Government Special Advisors. When are we going to see 50-50 representation across the Parliament? Well, if I had my way, <laughs> straight away, I think because the women are out there. I mean, that's the other thing I think we should be really clear. It's like there's not a dearth of women. This job is not so specialist that you need years and years of training. Like there's plenty of amazing women out there who could do all those positions, not just in parliament, it's in business, it's in public services as well. So that leads you to the question about, right, if, it, if the women are already there, what is it about the environment that has to change? And for me, this is about changing that environment. Quotas of course, because nothing else has worked. And, you know, it's the same old adage, isn't it? When we get to the point where we've got lots of mediocre women in positions of power and influence, then I'll stop. <laughs> and what would you say is the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? Is that the what you've faced with the abortion campaign? Actually, no, because open hostility I can deal with. What I find extraordinary is the numbers of men and occasionally women who feel the need to tell me whether they would sleep with me or not as part of whether they agree with me or not. Oh. As if that's something I've been thinking about, as if actually what I'm doing is trying to seek their attention 
to be somebody they might find attractive and then if I can have their vote as well so yeah and, and the funny thing I found now is like obviously being pregnant is people kind of tweeting things like well I, I used to really fancy Stella Creasy but she's really let herself go oh. <laughs> Like, you know, you need to lose some weight, love. And I'm like, I'm going to lose about eight pounds in two weeks' time. You need to lose the attitude, you know? <laughs> but I find it extraordinary. There's still that, just that kind of presumption that what a woman looks like is the starting point and therefore is of interest. That you, you need to get through that bit before you get to what she's trying to talk about or do. Well, bringing me to my next <laughs> question, if you were able to rule the world for just one day, what's the one thing you would do for women? Oh, God, I'd get rid of high heels. <laughs> I mean, who hasn't been trying to make a speech and just thinks, I could feel my bunions? <laughs> no, I mean, I... I, look, I love it. <laughs> there are so many things. But the thing I was... Look, we've talked a lot about all the things that are difficult and frustrating. There's so much good out there. And the worst thing I think in the world is people are beginning to lose hope. So if I could do one thing one day for people... Change is possible. It's just bloody hard work. But my God, when it happens... It's amazing. Like, we must never, ever give up. You might get cross. You might need a piece of cake. You might need some time out. You definitely need a pair of flat shoes. But it is possible. And we must never let ourselves talk ourselves out of the possibility it is, because otherwise the status quo reigns. Very well said. And my final question, Virginia Woolf says, a feminist is any woman who tells the truth about her life. Stella Creasy says. <laughs> oh, well, my, my truth is the Gloria Senum thing about the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Women should be pissed off at the state of the world because we should be impatient for the fact there's a better world out there. So should men. I mean, come on, we, you know, there are so many men out there who do want the better world, but they're all sitting around feeling terribly prim and proper about where they should get involved. I'm like, lads, come on, come on. Don't, don't be shy now. Don't be frightened. Just do it differently. <laughs> Stella Creasy, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Mm-hmm.